SOAS Radio. Hello, you're listening to SOAS Radio. I'm Fred. And I'm Almira. And welcome to Professor Playlist. For this series, we've lured SOAS academics out of their classes and into the studio to tell us more about themselves through five of their most loved tracks. In this episode, Fred chats with Dr. Ben Dix as he shares the story which led him to found Positive Negatives. Positive Negatives is a non-profit organization that produces comics, animations, and podcasts about contemporary social and humanitarian issues. Today, I'm joined in the studio by Dr. Ben Dix. Welcome, Ben. So you, you're so a student. You graduated in 2002 with my BA in geography. I specialized in South Asia, but it was obviously Asia and Africa. I just spent four years living in India, so I was very interested in the Gangetic Plain of North India and the Himalayan region. You continued to study. Do you work after your undergraduate or did you go straight into postgraduate study? No, I worked. I left in 2002. I went back to India and was a photojournalist working for a couple of newspapers in India. And then at the end of 2004, on Boxing Day 2004, the South Asian tsunami hit. And one of my closest friends, James from SOAS, he was working in the Tamil Tiger region of North Sri Lanka, which was hugely damaged, destroyed the coastline by the tsunami. And he gave me a call that morning. He was actually on his way to visit me in Bombay for a holiday and was supposed to fly that afternoon Boxing Day to Bombay to meet me and called me that morning and said, "Look, I don't. We didn't really know the word of the tsunami then. He just said this this catastrophe has happened, this big wave, and could I come over and help him? There were no um, expats that had all gone home for Christmas, and so I jumped on a plane and went over there. And I thought I'd spend about ten days with him, and I ended up spending about four years in northern Sri Lanka working alongside James, and that was a, a life changing situation. So what? track are you going to play for us as your first track? So this is Bedouin Sound Clash, Rude Boys Don't Cry, which is a very poignant song for me. So whilst we were living in North Sri Lanka, the conflict between the Tamil Tigers and the Sri Lankan government started again uh, in 2006. And we were caught very much in the middle of that. And my role changed as the liaison um, between the the Tigers and the uh, UN. And in the distance, in, in 2006, the kind of the rumblings of the conflict started. And there was this whole area where we were building tsunami relief camps. And that area suddenly was out of bounds to us because the, the Tigers and the government were firing artillery backwards and forwards in the area where we were building. And it had been about two weeks. Uh, we we weren't allowed down there and we had about 700 houses that we had been building there and James and I woke up on a Sunday morning and realised that we could no longer hear this boom, 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 boom in the distance and they had obviously stopped so we, in hindsight stupidly decided to drive down to see what damage had been done to our buildings uh, of the the tsunami relief camps and so we drove down there in two vehicles and we drove down across these through these palmera tree jungles and across into the the beach areas and there we got out the car and there were all the foundations of the houses and huts that we had been building and all of our building materials are piles of bricks and jcbs and all this stuff down there it was a big construction site and we were standing there kind of looking at some of the the destroyed houses and suddenly there was this and the army from the other side of the the government lines had fired an artillery shell into where we were standing they'd seen our two vehicles coming in and i guess assumed they were tiger vehicles so we started running towards our vehicles at the same time there was this almighty explosion 
coming from behind us and the tigers were behind the bushes in the distance over there and fired an artillery rocket over the top so we suddenly found ourselves in the middle of this artillery match going backwards and forwards and I jumped into my car James into his car and we just floored it down this long sandy beach road with the Indian Ocean to our left and the construction site to our right and you could just hear coming down and I flat out just hit my iPod at the time and Rude Boy Don't Cry came on. with Rude Boy Don't Cry. How many songs did you have on your iPod at that time? What was the chance? That was a, a great soundtrack to <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what you were just describing. Yeah, it was uh, It was quite a lucky tune that was Rude Boy Don't Cry because uh, it was a really, really scary moment and, and a completely stupid moment. I remember James and I got back to our huts and kind of just looked at each other and it was like, that, that was a really stupid thing to do. <laughs> the adrenaline must have been rushing minds. Yeah. My pulse uh, it went up as you were telling it. Yeah, it it was my grandmother's birthday as well that day. And I remember having to call her later that afternoon and my parents asking me, you know, how's things going in Sri Lanka? And I'd say, yeah, it's okay. There's some rumblings in the distance. But yeah, obviously don't want to worry them with stories of total stupidity. Have you told them uh, later on? Yeah. yeah, yeah. (laughs) So how long did you work uh, in total? That was uh, quite interesting that you you were kind of happened there by chance Mm. um, from being a photojournalist. What kind of stuff were you covering uh, before you went to Sri Lanka? Um, In India, I was covering a lot of 
projects about using child labour. Um, so some of the new highways that were being built uh, around Delhi that were going out towards Jaipur and the, the satellite city of Gurgaon were using a lot of child labour and some of them were funded by the World Bank and for other projects but local contractors were having either child labour or lots of children around construction sites and people were living in those areas. So we were doing kind of some undercover research and, and I was a, a photographer at the time there. And then when I went to Sri Lanka, I went there, as I said, to help James. And then all these consultants and people came over from Europe for all the NGOs and the UN to look at this disaster of the tsunami. And the Norwegians picked me up uh, to be their communications officer post-tsunami. So use photography, interviewing people of what they had experienced in the tsunami and then what, what their needs were, really, um, so that those photos and reports could be sent back to Europe to raise money to, to build the houses and the huts and livelihood projects back on track. Uh, how did the site fare, the building site you were describing after the artillery fire? Well, unfortunately, that got destroyed. I mean, that was the last time uh, any international, I think, went down to that site because the war spiraled. So we, I never went back down to the, the shore again uh, in that area. So through 2006, uh, seven and eight, the, the conflict just spiraled and spiraled to a point where it was all out war. In 2008, we were brought down into, so the UN has phases of security and it went from kind of phase two, which means that you're, you're fully operational, but there, there's some risk around all the way up to phase five, which is, uh, sorry, phase four, which is a skeleton staff of, of just the necessary uh, staff there. And then phase five, which is full evacuation of the operation. Um, uh, and in September 2008, uh, we got up to phase five. So there were eight of us left, eight internationals and about 100 Sri Lankan Tamil staff. Uh, and at that point, it was it was all out war. I mean, we had air attacks constantly. We had artillery. The the army had pushed up from the south, from the government lines, and, and was kind of squeezing the town of Kilinochi, which is where the, the tiger de facto capital and we're kind of squeezing the tigers so that the whole population was moving north towards the Indian Ocean and uh, our operation got down to like a two square kilometer area which we were allowed to work in which was completely pointless so kind of the last six weeks we were there we were really just kind of a, a human shield really we couldn't do any kind of operations um, and we were spending hours and hours sitting in the bunker uh, and it was in that bunker that I first read a graphic novel called Mouse, which is about the Holocaust. And that gave me the inspiration years later to start Positive Negatives, which is what I do here now at SOAS and creating animations and comics of research and stuff. Um, Did a colleague uh, pass that to you? or Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So we were sitting, I mean, you know, the first time you run into the bunker under air attack or artillery attack is incredibly scary. When you start spending eight hours a day, every day, it becomes normal life. So I watched, you know, all episodes of The Peep Show. I watched The Wire. Um, you know, we had time in the bunker to, to spend and, and someone had mouse kicking around and I'd never read a graphic novel. And I was just so inspired by how you could tell such a complex uh, story through sequential art and I remember clearly coming out of the bunker that evening and just thinking okay we're the UN there's the the refugees there's the the Sri Lankan army flying around the artillery the Tamil Tigers this is a graphic novel how so, old were you at the time 32 
So still very young. And uh, it was an incredibly difficult time to be in an area where it was obvious that the UN were going to evacuate. The excitement of the civilians of us leaving was really heightened when they could see that we were preparing to evacuate. So they were suddenly the civilian community were caught between, you know, potential recruitment by the Tamil Tigers and bombardment by the Sri Lankan army. Um, and as eight international staff, we were there really as the only independent witness to all the atrocities from both sides. And then on September the 12th, 2008, we got our orders from, from Colombo, which came from New York, uh, that we would have to prepare to leave. For the next six days, we had Tamil uh, civilians protesting outside our offices, just basically pleading with us not to go. You know, we were that independent witness between these two warring sides. To have been there for four years through amazing times, to have made friends and been to weddings, to have been to christenings of, of young children, to, to have made deep friendships of people of that community to suddenly get to that point where you're being evacuated out under such atrocious circumstances was was incredibly traumatic for me both personally and professionally it was a complete failure of, of the professional life of the, the United Nations and what it stood for to be there and so you become very ashamed of, of this organisation you work for at the time and incredibly emotional I was running around you know trying to my last few days there helping families to dig bunkers you know basically dug out pits in their gardens to try and withstand the the onslaught that was about to come when we left. Yeah, I mean, it was a life-changing experience. What were the orders or why did the orders come through? Was it a security issue because of the... Yeah, so what happens in, in a situation like that where we weren't there as protectors of peace, we were there through uh, development and our role there was to do development projects, livelihood projects and, and construction post-tsunami and this became a political war between the Tamil Tigers and the, the Sri Lankan army. It became incredibly dangerous. I mean, it, we were in physical danger uh, on a daily basis and at, at points like that, the United Nations pulled out and said, you know, we can't have UN internationals in that area at that time. It's something the eight of us were, we protested about and, and wrote emails to our superiors down in Colombo, but the orders were set that we had to leave. Uh, and we left a huge number of our Sri Lankan Tamil staff behind that the Tigers, so to get out of that area, the Tigers have to give a pass to cross the Tiger lines out into the government lines, and they didn't give passes to our Sri Lankan Tamil staff. So then we had this horrendous situation where we were writing letters for our Tamil staff in both English, Tamil and Singhala with their photograph and their ID number that if the Tigers or the Sri Lankan army picked them up, they would have some. this letter was there to say, you know, I'm a UN staffer, don't recruit me and don't kill me, you know, don't target me. Um, but we not lost a number of our staff uh, after we left and it was, uh, I mean, it was just a complete failure. Um, it's you know now Sri Lanka is spoken about in the same sentences as Srebrenica, Rwanda, and now failures in Syria. And as a young worker, you know this was my first humanitarian job, and it was a real eye opener to what how it can go very very badly wrong. I'm really sorry to hear about uh, your colleagues. Uh, what are you going to play for us next? So this is a song which uh, is incredibly emotional for me. It's called uh, The Host of Seraphim. It's by Dead Can, Dance, uh, Dead Can Dance. Uh, and it's the tune that I was playing. Um, sorry. Hmm. I have memories of this song. It's the song that I was playing uh, in the morning uh, of evacuating on uh, 11 o'clock on September the 18th, 2008, um, when the, the community were pleading and banging on our, our car windows as we drove out. 
Dead Can Dance with the host of Seraphim. Ben, why did you choose that track specifically? Or- well, as you know, as I explained, that was uh, an incredibly heartbreaking moment um, to to have to evacuate from that the the Vani, uh, North Sri Lanka, uh, on that morning. And I mean, I was destroyed. I was exhausted. We, we you know we were sleeping for for two hours a night in the bunker. You know, I mean, it was just we had broken sleep with air attacks and everything. So you're absolutely exhausted. You're completely destroyed, kind of professionally and emotionally at what you're you're having to evacuate. You're hugging friends goodbye, thinking you know you're you're about to face a brutal war. Or a, probably won't see you again um and so i got in my car just destroyed and this song just summed up the emotions of the time i mean i was you know listening to it now thinking i i I could have been probably slightly kinder on myself and listened to something maybe again rude boy don't cry um but this was particularly poignant it kind of built the atmosphere of the tragedy that I was driving through. Uh, and so you, you spoke about um, your feelings uh, working or your first job as, humanitarian. as a, a humanitarian. What happened after that? What steps did you take? I mean, if, did you take a lot of time off after uh, evacuating or what did your life look like mm. uh, when you left Sri Lanka? So I left, I quit my job the next day. I came out of, uh, we went through that evacuation. We went through the government lines. They, they, the army stripped our vehicles. They, I mean, almost kind of strip search us. We're taking my vehicle apart to see if we had taken anything from the Tigers or anything from there. And, um, I was so upset with with the failure of the UN. I didn't want to be a part of it at all. Um, so I, I handed in my resignation that that evening. Uh, went down to Colombo the next day and flew out. I think the day after. Uh, I was very quick. Like within a couple of days, I was off the island and back in the UK. And I spent about two weeks in the UK in a complete dream. I mean, it, it was um, it was very very difficult to interact with people with my family and my friends to come out of such a war zone to have such abandonment issues um and guilt that you had left these people you know for four years i was in that in that jungle in that tight community and so to be back in london knowing what they're going through you know knowing that right now they're being bombarded far heavier than when i was there because now all international witness has gone the army can just go in hard um, and so it was. It was an incredibly disorientating time, and an old colleague of mine from Sri Lanka was then working in South Sudan, and I was kind of reaching out to him. I was communicating a lot with friends and old colleagues who who understood what I'd be going through, you know. And that wasn't my London friends who hadn't been in war zones. So I was kind of connecting with these old colleagues, and he was working in South Sudan in the landmine removal department again with the Norwegians. And so he said, "Look." come down here like you're going back into a kind of war zone area it was an active war in south sudan at that time it was pre-independence um but you'll you know it's an environment i know and i'm comfortable in so i went down there for about six seven months and worked with again communications with the landmine removal teams and that's when i you know every day i was receiving emails of another friend has died in sri lanka another colleague has died in sri lanka and that was incredibly hard, but at least I was in an environment where people understood. I was in an environment where there's conflict, where there has been conflict, and I was with colleagues who understood that stuff that I could talk to them about, which I couldn't get from people in London. So um, I went through that. I then finished, came back to London, um, and realised that I needed to kind of confront this. And I was that's when I started thinking about 
this book, um, doing a graphic novel on Sri Lanka. I still had a lot of guilt and a lot of upset to deal with. And I went out for a walk one night in the snow. My parents lived down in Kent. And uh, I went out um, into this uh, country lane with high hedgerows on either side. It was about nine o'clock at night. I'd left my phone in the kitchen and I was walking through the snow and there was no cars around. I came around the corner and this one car kind of slowly came around the corner in the deep snow. And I stepped out off the side of the road. The car went past and as my foot went through the snow onto probably like the curb or something, it just went crack. And I heard, I heard it. I heard my leg snap. And I looked down, I pulled my leg up and I was looking at the bottom of my foot. It completely snapped around. So I first reached for my phone and my phone's in the kitchen in my parents' house. I'm about two kilometres away on a country lane from my parents' house. It's nine, ten o'clock at night. This car goes off into the distance and it's fields on either side and I'm just wearing a light jacket. It wasn't that cold, but there was snow. So I was like, ah. Um, so I bit, this, I bit down on this stick and I just went one, two, three and crack and put my foot back into place. And I was biting on the stick like, don't faint. If you pass out here, then you've got a problem in this snow, right? And I spent the next two, two and a half hours crawling, dragging myself back through these country lanes with this snapped leg, uh, kind of laughing at the absurdity that I might die in Kent. And after going through <laughs> this experience in Sri Lanka and then South Sudan, I was just determined not to die in Kent. And I finally got home, slammed on my the parents' door. My dad came down and my ankle was huge. You know, it was a clear break. So I went down to hospital. I spent the next two months lying on my parents' sofa. And that's when I got the tsunami of emotion come through onto me. I suddenly had to deal with Sri Lanka. Um, and I, it really hit hard. I mean, that's when post-traumatic stress kicked in. That's when I was a mess. I was, you know, suicidal thoughts. I couldn't communicate. I was, I was feeling, I was really feeling quite isolated and in a, in a very, very difficult place. And as the leg got better and stronger, uh, I went to a physio and the physio told me I had to do this, where you're pushing your foot up and down on an elastic band to strengthen the ankle and as he was doing that I was thinking well that's the motion you do on the back brake of a motorbike um, so instead of sitting on the sofa which I've been doing for two months I'm going to buy myself a motorbike and I'm going to I looked at a map and I said right I'm going to ride over every mountain pass to the Black Sea uh, across Europe uh, southern Europe all the way there and northern Europe all the way back it's about 12,000 kilometers it's going to take me about let's say 12-13 weeks uh, I didn't really plan it much more than that i filled up my little north face bag stuck it on the back of this motorbike uh, what motorbike did you buy it was, it was a bmw 800 i treated myself yeah like, it's a nice bike well it was physio it wasn't yeah, yeah, it wasn't a, a life crisis it was physio <laughs> exactly <laughs> so i bought this nice bike and i just rode off and it was the morning of the i remember having it was about six seven in the morning my dad was going off to work and i was sat in the kitchen with him packing my bags and all my gear and he's just kind of looking at me going okay like this is your physio right you're just going to ride off on this motorbike and it was the morning of the iceland volcano 
because on the radio that morning they were saying there was uh, no flights in the sky because of this volcanic ash across Europe. Lucky you bought a motorbike. Exactly. So I got on my bike and I rode all the way uh, for like four or five weeks out over every mountain range. Um, Did you have a favorite? Oh, the Dolomites. I think the Dolomites down into Slovenia, absolutely fantastic, really wonderful. So I, I had some headphones inside my bike, uh, inside my helmet. Um, uh, I had a playlist, which was a few thousand songs long on my uh, iPhone then. I upgraded from an iPod from Sri Lanka. And um, and I and I was by myself. I had a tent in the back, and I was just riding across the mountains. I'd, I'd stop. I didn't want to talk to anyone. I didn't want to. I didn't want to interact. I just wanted to ride and ride and ride and ride and uh, and get this out of my system or just deal with the trauma that I was dealing with. I just needed to be by myself. So I started riding off and I had a tent. I'd come into a little village. I'd buy some fruit and bread. I'd ride up in the evening. I'd pitch my tent up in a forest with a view. I'd park my bike, pitch the tent, make a fire, sleep there the night, ride down to a valley the next morning, wash in a river and ride. And that's all I did for like 12 weeks. And what have you chosen? What song have you chosen from that trip? So as I was coming, and this was completely random, I had a... a a playlist on shuffle um so I, I i had no idea what was going to come up next and as i came over this last hill in bulgaria and i kind of summited on this hill and there was the black sea in front of me the rolling stones give me shelter came on and that guitar rift at the beginning i'm getting goosebumps just singing now that guitar rift at the beginning completely checked that built positive negatives that was all of that negative trauma of guilt and abandonment and everything in that opening guitar riff just went, right, I'm, I've got to turn, I'm turning this around. This energy is going to become positive and I'm going to do stuff with the experience that I've just had. And so Give Me Shelter was a, is a, is a incredibly poignant song for me.
stones with uh, Gimme Shelter. So did you ride back? How yeah, long yeah. Uh, from that thought did it take to lay the, the groundwork for positive negative? Yeah, I mean, it was an interesting, uh, it was an interesting ride really to go on the way there. I was traumatized and in a very dark, lonely space, regardless of the beauty of the environment that I was riding in. Um, I wasn't really looking around. I was just, you, you know, using the the the, excel, the the throttle of that motorbike just to roar out the, the and your foot, hopefully, and my foot. How, how did the foot? Uh, <laughs> the fare? foot. The foot came back pretty strong, actually. That was good therapy. I, I went back into the doctor's surgery and my physiotherapist, and I was like, "There you go. That's twelve thousand kilometers <laughs> of, of strong ankle." Um, and and then when I heard that song and I, I stopped that night on the Black Sea and, and everything was poignant, you know, I'd made it to my destination of the Black Sea on the Romanian-Bulgarian coast. That song had just given, given me shelter, had given me like this this inspiration to, to push through this trauma and, and turn it into something positive. And then the ride back was far more positive. Suddenly I was full of ideas, you know. I was like, it, it, it didn't, I mean, the the... the I have a, 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 a scar inside me that Sri Lanka has has, has given me, but um, it, it was turning into scar tissue, you know. Like, and I suddenly was able to to work with that trauma and turn it into something um, not so destructive and, and more positive. And so I came back. I was riding back for about six weeks back through northern Europe, but I got back to the UK and with my strong foot and started working with this fantastic artist, Lindsay, Lindsay Pollock, who uh, uh, was put in touch with me th again through SOAS, through an old friend of mine at SOAS. Uh, she went to school with him and we started working on how you turn this experience of Sri Lanka into uh, a graphic novel. Um, we thought it would probably be, I don't know, three to five month project. It then turned into a PhD. Uh, a colleague of mine down at um, Sussex University said, look, this is a really interesting um, PhD of taking testimonies of Sri Lanka, of survivors of Sri Lanka. So I was going between London, Zurich, and then I flew down to Chennai in southern India. And I was linking up with people who had survived, my old friends, my old colleagues from Sri Lanka who were coming coming out of the war and flown as asylum seekers in Europe or, or refugees in, in southern India. And so I started to go and see them and, you know, I just at first I just wanted to give them a hug and I just wanted to see them and say sorry and, and you know, whatever you say, you just go through the motions with them. Um, and then I realised actually they would be the basis of this novel. Let's tell your story. Let's tell the failings of the UN and the international community through your survival story um, and turn that into art. Um, and so that whole methodology became the basis of my PhD at Sussex. Um, the book was was being built and built alongside. And um, in the second year of my PhD, I realised actually what we were doing here was a really interesting communication tool of turning complex stories into um, art uh, for a non-academic audience. Uh, and then hopefully when they've read the end of the comic or seen the animation, it kind of feeds the audience back to the research and the wider theoretical issues that we're dealing with. So I registered Positive Negatives as a, as a non-profit in 20, end of 2012. And continued doing the um, PhD and was bouncing around the world 
meeting up with ex-colleagues, commissioners and getting projects together for positive negatives. And one of the projects uh, was a um, story about Syrian migration. So this was 2013, 14. And it was as this this first big migration of Syrian uh, community was coming out of Syria towards Europe. And so I started the project in a Zaatari refugee camp. I had one of my old colleagues from Sri Lanka was working there. And so I flew out to Jordan. I went up to Zaatari, which is on the Syrian-Iraq border of northern Jordan. And it was a huge refugee camp. I mean, at that time, there was maybe 120,000 Syrians there. And I started interviewing Syrian refugees. Most of them were from the south, from Dara. And there was one evening um, I went outside of the camp and that day or that evening was when the first chemical attack happened in Damascus. And I mean, there's been so many atrocities through that war that we kind of lose track on, on these, uh, on these issues. And that day had been this chemical attack. Um, and I was walking through the, the huts of the Syrian refugees and everyone had a TV and the, the media in the Arab world is, is, um, far less sensitized as Europe. So you're seeing raw footage on the TV of, you know, just the, just the horrors of what chemical weapons do to people. And so I, I was hearing this wailing and, and crying and, and trying to get people's, um, responses to what had happened. And the sun went down and I sat just on the the border of, of the desert and the refugee camp in the back of this pickup. And again, I hit the music and I put this song on um, twice by a little dragon. And I sat there under the stars on the desert just hearing this song and just the screams of Zatari camp behind me. And again, this song is, is very poignant to remembering that, that moment.
Little Dragon, the track twice. So why did you choose that one? Is it the mood of the song or? It's the mood and is that piano was, um, I mean, I, I guess, you know, like with all music, it can take you, it's, it's contextual, your environment of where you're listening to these, these kind of songs um, or any kind of music. But the hauntingness, the, the, the haunting sound of, of that piano and her song and her, her voice. I don't think it, actually it wasn't much to do with the lyrics. It was the piano and her voice just fit for sitting under the stars with this wailing and crying and the terrible atrocity that had just happened. It's a shame. I mean, obviously now I connect that experience with that song because it's such a beautiful song. But it uh, it does take me back to a very tragic episode in, in serious history. So was that uh, you were still doing your PhD or had you finished and you were doing um, the, the first work uh, for Positive Negatives? Uh, no, they both they overlapped. So I was I was quite a reluctant uh, student. I'm, I'm 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 not a natural academic. I, I kind of kicked and screamed through my PhD. A positive negatives was taking off. It was being commissioned. I was getting you know commissions like this this Syria project, uh, another project with the Open Society on the Somali diaspora across Europe. Um, and so it was it was what was I was finding difficult was one I was kind of like running this this um, organization which was really taking off and kept taking me very busy and the other aspect of my life was to keep coming back to a library and sitting down and writing about Sri Lanka which was an incredibly traumatic episode of my life and I was there was a big part of me which was trying to distance myself from that and just get a breather from Sri Lanka but my I designed my PhD that it was on the methodologies of taking these testimonies of survivors and turning them into art so I'm I'm very pleased I did it in hindsight but it was a really tiring episode of one trying to build this organization and two constantly coming back to the trauma of Sri Lanka so I run them separately and in 2016 I finished my my PhD um, and Andrea Cornwall the pro director of SOAS she was my examiner and uh, and I had a very nice afternoon there where she gave me my doctorate uh, which was a lovely day um, lovely that I got it and lovely that I could just walk away from it it was done um, and then Positive negatives kind of took off really, and we're now working on nearly like 17 projects across 34 countries uh, and doing projects with SOAS and Sussex and Durham and the Peace Research Institute of Oslo and IDEO and all kinds of organizations on projects on migration, um, uh, sexual health, conflict, um, uh, uh, drugs, and uh, so many projects ac- ac- across the world. It's, 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 it's amazing how it's kind of built and developed and, and got arms and legs of its own now. Um, and I have a fantastic team. We're based here in the Faber building at SOAS. Um, and my team of, of young researchers just pour their energy and enthusiasm into it and it's I mean it's it's a I'm in such a lovely position that it's a joy to work you know how has the the methodology uh, methodology changed since um, those initial interviews in Sri Lanka Hmm. I think the the foundations of it are the same it's about participatory uh, nature of methodology so it's really you know we're all very aware that we are not the we are not the story. Um, we go and work with people to tell their stories um, through art, and we are really the conduit to, to link 
the storyteller with the artist. Uh, we produce it, we bring it all together, um, but we try and as much as possible remove ourselves from the stories. Um, and so the, the methodologies have shaped and changed with the team that I have who come into it with all of their ideas and enthusiasm and energy. Um, so we do a lot of kind of co-creative work now where we really sit down with artists and um, the, 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 the people, the storytellers, um, and try and bridge that gap and, and distance ourselves from it a little bit. And so we work, whereas when we started with just myself and Lindsay, um, you know, we're two white men in London telling a story about Sri Lanka. Now, I have a place in that story of Sri Lanka, but it's very problematic that there weren't Sri Lankans on that team, that there wasn't a Sri Lankan artist, there wasn't a Sri Lankan storyteller. So those are the kind of methodologies now that we try and change. We try and get, you know, the, the artist is the right gender for the for the particular project we try and work with an artist from the stories that we're taking so my colleague poppy at the moment is working on projects in uh, drc and somalia and she's searching for congolese and somali artists sarah is working on projects on human rights and gender in india and we're working with two indian female artists so that's taken time for the company matu to mature and get to that stage and, and it sounds quite an easy thing but that needs funding and logistics and and kind of mechanism behind it to bring all that together and it's just been a really exhausting but hugely exciting journey for seven years to kind of no immediate plan i mean i think you get from this interview there i wasn't sh sitting in sri lanka and kind of had an idea that i was going to make positive negatives it kind of came out from rolling stones <laughs> um but uh it you know you 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 have an idea and you run with it and you see where it goes and it's uh, it's it's a absolute amazing experience to do that uh, what can we expect or um from future projects is there anything in particular you want to plug that you're excited about that you're working on yeah so we just we we just got uh last week we were able to uh officially announce that we've got a uh, a large gcrf a global challenges research fund um project on south to south migration which um laura hammond here at soas she's one of the co-eyes on it and heaven crawley at coventry is the uh principal investigator the pi so this is looking at uh global south to south migration across uh, six of the the largest south to south corridors so why people move from a to b um, and looking at all so many aspects kind of behind that movement um, it's a huge five-year project 12 countries 42 partners and positive negatives job is to turn that research over the next five years into audio visual interesting innovative communications education tools um, and it's uh, it's a kind of dream come true project um, working with a, a really funky cutting edge team so we're off next week to have the kickoff meeting in Accra in Ghana which is going to be great um, I've never been to Ghana and I can't think of I think February in the UK is exactly the time you want to go to Ghana um, and uh and that's the next five years working on that, which is it's going to be great fun. Looking forward to seeing uh, what comes out of that yeah. project. Uh, what's the last track you've chosen? 
So I thought uh, we'd take it a bit upbeat to finish um, and go back to a bit of motorbiking. So my job, as much as I I love it, I wouldn't want to do anything else. It can be heavy. I have absorbed, by virtue of this job, some of the world's most tragic stories. And you need some time to absorb those, to reflect on them. And motorbiking has been my space uh, to do that. So I've upgraded now to a 1200cc BMW. It's a monster of a bike. As I'm riding through the mountain, I like to ride alone. I never ride with uh, a group of bikers. I I have a tent or I I just ride and stop in little B&Bs on the way. Uh, And it really is my space to kind of reflect, think, you know, the nice thing about a motorbike is you can't answer, you don't answer a phone, you can't text, you're just there and you're moving and your scenery is changing and you interact with the environment a lot on a motorbike. You know, when you go into the the shade of a mountain, it gets cold, you come out into the sunshine, you feel the warmth on your back. And so you have a a really nice interaction with, with the environment around you, very different to being in a car. And as I ride, I like to listen to uh, various tunes from drum and bass to, to hip hop, whatever. And there's a song by Black Alicious called Ashes to Ashes, where there are many songs and it was quite hard which one to choose for this. But this has the particular beat that when you get into the zone of riding a big motorbike through mountain roads like the Alps, you get into this zone where you are at one with the bike and you're riding hard and fast through these mountain roads and you, you, the the brakes the clutch the gears the 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 movement of the body as you bam 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 through these kind of uh, mountain wiggly mountain roads and this tune just has that beat that when you get it right and the bike and the road is moving with the dum 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 with the beat oh, it's it's a sweet spot As if I'm not here, styles fall from the mentally odd and quite weird. My girl wanna enter my yard, my light year flow strikes with precision for all. I'm right here with raw inner vision beyond your sight, hearing and beyond all your senses. I draw the light near you, a flawed individual dog. I write sheer elegance, I'm a bottle of dawn, you light beer. So now I'm perfecting the style, it's like layers of a foul dragon, sentences written with nightmares. Better pause for you spitting that garbage, you right here. I'm a call telling niggas to quit on the mic, period. Because I've been giving this right tonight, we're Gonna floor your lyrics, these suckers are not near. They are four from abilities. I ignite fear. You just want something with me. I don't ever fight fear. Ashes to ashes and dust to dust. We are the crew called Black Delicious. We came to rock for you and yours. Put your arms in the air, your feet on the floor. Put your arms in the air, your feet on the floor. Put your arms in the air, your feet on the floor. Guaranteed to give you what you paid your money for. Cause that Black Delicious crew got rhymes the Lord. 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 I got talent, these critics do not have, still they ride 
right Like some type of authority on rap Really like that your opinion is worthy I'm like after you make worthy music Then come and be that cat Yeah Plummeting raps at you That's that Period done Then get checks from ASCAP Just give me a drum I'ma spark the last match Y'all hit me with one rhythm Do it I'll smash that My meridium's home I'm so lyrically advanced I deliver it from within Leaving your lads back And millennium's dumb Because really I'm past that I'm a million and one thousand further Now catch that Catch that I was born to murder your rap black Alerted to that fact You're certain to have crap to say Then get slain And hurt as I lash back And verbally ramsack You turf and leave cats flat Ashes to ashes and dust to dust We are the crew got back delicious We came to rock for you and yours Put your arms in the air Your feet on the floor Put your arms in the air Ashes to Ashes by Black Alicious. Thanks so much, Ben, for sharing your story. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to episode three of Professor Playlist with Dr. Ben Dix on SOAS Radio. Stay tuned for our next episode featuring Dr. Malaika Hijas from the Southeast Asian Studies Department.